AML professionals and the compliance community in general have always known the value of working closely with the Internal Revenue Service. But frequently, and especially in today's climate, many individuals are unaware of what the IRS does, what it works on, and how important it is to the investigations of financial crime, tax evasion, and money laundering. In this edition of AML Conversations, AML RightSource Vice Chairman John Byrne sits down with Mark Matthews, who has had a long and distinguished career in both the private and public sectors. He's currently a member of a law firm in Washington, D.C. called Kaplan and Drysdale, and throughout his career, he has been the IRS Deputy Commissioner for Services and Enforcement, the head of the IRS Criminal Division, and he has held a number of other important roles in the government. Outside of the government, he has worked in AML and now again in white-collar defense work. John sat down with Mark and talked about a wide range of issues, including the difference between tax evasion and tax avoidance, what the IRS works on, and the importance of understanding its value to the rule of law. Enjoy this edition of AML Conversations. Mark, um, one of the things that I've written about in some of the blogs that that I've put out in the past couple of years is how I don't think the public understands the value in the criminal financial crime space of the Internal Revenue Service. Uh, people in law enforcement understand it, and certainly policymakers should. They don't all. Uh, so having you gives me a couple of opportunities. The first the first big one is, what, what is the biggest misconception that the public has about the Internal Revenue Service? Well, I think there, there, there's two that I, if I can talk about briefly. One, I'm still worried that out of some of the politics of the Cincinnati thing that the IRS is perceived in, in some instances as, um, as, as politicized. In my experience there, uh, you know, there's only essentially one political appointee, the commissioner. There's a chief counsel who's also political. But it's one of those agencies like the FBI and the CIA that are, are filled with career people. You don't want a lot of people approved by the White House in any administration coursing through a place like that with access to the kind of information it does. And in my experience, and I've spent several years there on the inside and the outside, I, I see career people struggling to get it right, and if anything, uh, almost overly concerned at times about appearing political and trying to be careful so that it's seen, their, their work is seen as, as, um, as, as neutral. Um, the other sort of bigger misconception that worries me sometimes is I think the public think they're more powerful and efficient uh, and have more resources than they do and what worries me is sometimes when we see their resources starting to fall, uh, I don't want the public to change them. I don't want the public to think, wow, I'm the only guy who's paying on April 15th. I don't want them to feel like they're a chump. So I think it's important that we you know, cor- correct both of those, send a message they're nonpartisan, and try to get their resources up to, to validate the truth. I'm going to come back to tax evasion which is a, and tax avoidance, which are major areas that you continue to work on. But I do want to go... Uh, back in time a bit. You've been at the IRS in several different functions, but one of the particular ones that our audience understands fully is the director or the head of the criminal division um, of, uh, of IRS. And you were there at a particularly important point in our history, and that is through 9-11. Give us a sense of when you started there, what the focus was, and then let's talk about 
9-11 the day and the immediate aftermath? Sure. What, what I was there was in the aftermath of something called the Roth hearings, which some of your listeners may remember. Those were some very explosive uh, hearings uh, by the Senate Finance Committee, literally people testifying behind screens and the like about alleged IRS abuses. Um, most of those proved to, to not be true afterwards. But if you're running, I want, to, I want to be clear, if you're running an organization as complex, on a tax code as complex, there are mistakes, there are errors, and the, the place needs to be constantly oversighted. But they were really on the down swing from a series of uh, very aggressive interviews. So I was I was brought in as sort of a change agent. Uh, I, there had never been a non-special agent as chief, and so I came in uh, is, is part of that. And one of our major focuses was actually to try to get back a little bit to the, the tax world because the internally it was seen that CI was overly interested in money laundering, narcotics, those kinds of things. So we were trying to adjust that and bringing the resources back a little bit, and there were a variety of, of steps to that. On the day of 9-11, the world changed for a lot of us. I was actually airborne um, out to a Justice Treasury conference out in, in St. Louis, managed uh, to get there. But my, uh, we, I think we had SkyTel pagers back then, right. not cell phones. My, my, it was call, call, call. And within hours, we were getting phone calls from the National Security Council and other places to get agents into the Middle East, IRS agents, into the Middle East to back up efforts to follow the money trail. Uh, teams were going in into literally like caves and other and getting the banking records and sure. that kind of thing. And I, I'm proud and like to think that the IRS special agents sort of follow the money trail as, as well as others. So the way I looked at it from there on, we dedicated whatever we had to to terrorism. It, it didn't matter if it came out of the tax evasion bucket, if you will, of resources. And I think the maximum they ever s sort of spent, if you will, on resources floated around 7 to 10% on terrorism matters. Um, I think over 100 CI special agents volunteered to be air marshals, if everybody remembers the real worry sure. about that. And again, that wasn't our job right. in some sense, but we, of course, let the agents uh, volunteer and do that work as well. But terrorism remains sort of a special bucket, and if, if the IRS gets called on for that in any capacity, I think that always moves to the front of the line. Sort of a side issue, but one I, I think about when I think about post-9-11, um, being involved with the banking industry at the time, one of the things we did immediately is we brought a bunch of institutions together with, I remember at the time, FBI. I don't recall if IRS was part of that. I'm guessing, I'm educated guessing that they probably were, and met up in New York, I think under, under the umbrella of the clearinghouse, and shared information to better help agents. Did, did your folks get involved in any of that with the private sector, or was it all how you just de described it? You know, I, I don't know any... You know, the individual meetings, the IRS had, though, and CI in particular, had long had a pretty good outreach program Absolutely. with the bankers. In fact, that was one of their to-do lists. They were to walk out and, and hit the streets, introduce themselves to local bankers. It's sort of the regional and the retail and letters levels. And I, I know on, on occasions for bigger programs we tried to do, there were, you know, the Bank Secrecy Act, there were the various task forces at Treasury and where we worked with, mm -hmm. and, the, and the private sector was commuted, it was, it was, probably was cooperated there. there. I think, I think yeah. our people yeah. always tried to do a pretty good job of that. You know, uh, it, it reminds me, years ago I was teaching a, a compliance class in uh, Norman, Oklahoma, University of Oklahoma. It was a week-long school. 
And I taught it with, you might remember Mike McDonald. Mike McDonald was an agent, an IRS agent, retired years ago, but he was involved in Greenback. And some, right, so like was, legendary guy. Yeah, yeah. We, did some, uh, we did some sessions. He also received a career award from ACAMS and sadly passed away a couple of years ago. But I, I remember Mike and I did this, and then later on we invited local IRS agents to come to the class and then after just standing around talking to them, and I don't know why this still resonates with me, but I remember talking to a couple of them, and they were talking about living in the community. They said, yeah, we, we tend to live near each other because what happens invariably, as soon as the neighbors find out we're IRS criminal agents, <laughs> we're not as welcome as we should be. And this was 30 years ago, but right. I imagine they're still, because of the the political environment that we've been in for quite a while, there's still that negative view, sadly, about career law enforcement and other dedicated individuals that are working in this area. Yeah, it's it's something I'm particularly been sad to see. I have spent you know a large part of my career at the IRS, but I also had the experience working with uh, Judge Webster, who was the di- first mm-hmm. the director of the FBI and the CIA. I spent some time out at both of those places, and I'm not trying to make a political point here, but they all, to a certain degree, have been under attack at various mm-hmm. times. And not even just this administration, where some of us are feeling it a little bit more aggressively. But sure. there are other years. Sure. There was, there was, you know, uh, uh, Waco. Pick your pick your scandal yep. of any of those. And the yep. CIA's had their hearings as as well. Um, it's worrisome to me. Um, the FBI, at least, is an institution where, that can sort of tell its successes. So the public has a, a little bit more of a balanced view about the FBI and what it does. A place like the CIA and the IRS are interesting. The CIA's best successes are never told. Mm-hmm. Their errors are brought out in the public square for a yep. massive flogging. And you always worry about the message that's in. And it depends on people in Congress and the administration and the press to try to tell, even when we screw up in those agents, and we do, God knows, and they all need oversight. They all have access to unbelievable information and power. They need aggressive oversight. But the public, I hope that we work together to put that in perspective and a balance out there. And the IRS is certainly one of those that you know nobody likes uh, paying taxes. A lot of people, when we think about doing trials, uh, tax you're worried about the jury. Um, Sure. Ten of them on site hate the IRS. Uh, six of them have had a negative experience. Three are probably tax cheats, you know, at one level. You know, they've got problems they know about on their return. And so you always tried to pick cases where they looked at the defendant and said, what? but wow, yeah. I wouldn't do that. right? So, you know, we are aware of how those institutions are, are, are looked at. And I just think it's a part of all of us of trying to keep the perspective a little bit balanced, even in times when, when they're under attack. You've talked about um, the sort of the dichotomy or, or maybe the, par- the parallels, but not the, the total similarities of money laundering and tax evasion. I want to go to tax evasion and avoidance. Now you're on, you're not on the other side, but now you work with clients on voluntary disclosures and all that. Let's tell our audience, A, what's the the legal and practical distinction between tax avoidance and tax evasion? And I'll tell you what, you know, my prejudice has been since day one of being in this space is, you know, people that park their money overseas are never doing it because they're trying to help the U.S. Now, I say that, you know, I'm sure there's examples where I'm totally wrong. But, you know, you're parking your money to pay less of a tax bill, 
or if you're criminal, you're trying to hide it entirely. What's the difference between legitimately avoiding taxes by, again, parking your money in different locales and tax evasion, which is obviously a clear a clear attempt to avoid paying what many would argue is what you're required to pay. Sure. That, that line is, is, it can be difficult, um, and it, there's no, you can't go look it up in a book or in the Internal Revenue Manual. It, it all ultimately comes down to willfulness, and more, the, the, frankly, in a practical sense, what's the evidence of the willfulness? There's probably a lot of willful uh, tax evasion activity that's not pursued because the government is looking for those cases where, 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 where there's ample evidence of willfulness. So let's, let's look at two examples. In the offshore area, when I'm a U.S. citizen, and I've lived here all my life, and I decide to create a Swiss bank account owned by a Liechtenstein trust and I, that has a BVI corp, and I create fake invoices to an Italian company right, right. that I use in my business to wire money out, which then hits my Swiss bank account. And when it's, um, it, all the transactions are in cash uh, after that, and when I've lied to my accountant, either directly or on that organizer planner saying, no, I don't have any foreign bank accounts, those cases, you know, you start to say, as a defense lawyer, okay, game over. Right? There's, right. There's, not, there's nothing I'm going to be able to do right. with this. And it's, so let's, let's run into one of these voluntary disclosure programs, and hopefully we get in first before the government gets there, because the real key there is do you knock on the IRS's door before they knock on your right. door? But an enormous number of the cases we have may be a first-generation American citizen who, uh, whose parents or grandparents lived abroad, who the money actually never was in the United States, mm-hmm. um, uh, was earned over there. And it may have been that the taxes were paid uh, in some other locale out there, uh, but that the, the adult child is informed at some point we're putting your name on this account sort of as an inheritance device, Mm -hmm. you know, an estate plan. We don't want to lose track of this. Um, uh, That's okay and obviously not willful. And if they don't know anything about the the famous, now famous FBAR form, the foreign bank account report form, nobody's ever going to look at that as a willful case because it's clearly there were some mistakes and some negligence and some inadvertence, maybe a mistake of law that I didn't know I had this. What happens to us is that that case will morph and the American citizen will start traveling to Switzerland or whatever jurisdiction and that trip will be paid for out of the account. And that's nice while the parents are alive. And I, I, you know, I hear it's a great way to travel, you know, <laughs> entirely free. And then everybody goes by the bank on the way out, and everybody in the family puts nine thousand dollars in one pants pocket and heads home. You know, um, now we've moved something that started off uh, inadvertent or a mistake, um, and we've we've started to take that path towards something that looks more like evasion. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. You know, the um, uh, the recent fairly recent uh, investigative reports, the Panama Papers and the Paradise Papers, seem to, for the first time for the public, I mean, a lot of us in the AML space have known about this for quite a while, and we'll talk a bit about beneficial ownership in a, in a few minutes. But for that, did that, when those, when those reports came out and the media uh, reporting of those reports came out, did that change your business? Were you getting more, more calls from people, uh, you know, in terms of, oh, wait a second, I need to check some things out because now some things were more in the spotlight. I'm not, I'm not suggesting some folks, oh, now they've caught us. It's just more, do people say, wow, based on all this, maybe I need to rethink some yeah. of how you explained it yeah. before? Absolutely. It, it's, 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 
publicity for enforcement and people knowing the law is huge here. Uh, the FBAR form, I think, came out in 1972 and has been widely and wildly undercomplied sure, with for right, decades right. and enforcement and other and, and otherwise. Uh, when I tell people, even today, we just passed. Uh, a couple of years ago, one million FBARs filed. Wow. One year, when you think about it. And most of those are domestic, right? And a lot of those are overlapping. It's not only the employee, but the entity. and that. It's actually, when you think about it, anybody who knows anything about the banking and right. realizes that number is looking kind of low, right. even after all this publicity, right? And, and uh, again, I say most of those are domestic. According to the State Department, 7 million U.S. citizens live permanently abroad. Okay. We got a math problem yeah, here, sure. right? How many of those, you know, you got a few college kids, right? You got backpackers, you've got whatever. But most of those people are not also not tax cheats. They're 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 paying taxes in whatever jurisdiction they live in. They're dual citizens and the like. So uh, compliance and getting out this news is, is important to the to, to, to the efforts. It did though. I mean, before this whole UBS Credit Suisse, this DOJ IRS focus on the the number of FBARs filed was I think at right around two hundred thousand. So there's been a significant increase. But yeah, it, the world lit up. For us in this business, after some of the settlements, the UBS and particularly where it started, the Brad Birkenfeld story got out there. When when the IRS was going to close the first voluntary disclosure program, mm-hmm. uh, I think it was in October, to, got extended a couple times in 2009, I stayed in my office 62 days in a row, over, including over a three-day federal holiday, right. and had my secretary said, I didn't know I was going to go work in a doctor's office. We let her, we gave people an hour increment, and I started working European calls in the morning, wow. American calls during the day, and Asian calls in the evening. So it lit up. We got well over 100,000 people. The IRS got to come in and clean this up. But you still have to ask yourself on the numbers, while I think it got at a lot of the criminal behavior, I think there's still massive noncompliance with some of the reporting. But again, I don't think Uncle Sam's losing much to some of that noncompliance. In the money laundering environment, the community, there's been an ongoing debate in the U.S., about whether or not banks should report possible tax evasion. Now, FATF recommends it. It's not as, as it, it's it's not required here. What's your sense about that? And 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 you know, I mean, like you have been doing this for thirty plus years. I do remember in the when CTRs started to become oh, we need to pay attention to these in the right. mid to late eighties. There was the whole debate about structuring transactions. So you would have um, frontline tellers that thought they were being helpful. They said, oh, hey, Mark, if you give us 9000 and keep the two you're going to deposit, right. a couple of, right. you know, government won't be looking at you. And then, of course, they made sure that became a felony if you did it, if you did it willfully. Um, and so, you know, you report suspicious activities on the SARS, and some of that could be because of tax evasion, structuring, and those sorts of things. But it's not required. Is from a policy perspective, is it because, in part, there would be a fear um, that banks would, more so than today, have to sort of read the minds of their account holders? What do you hear in, your, in, in the groups you travel with? Because right. it, it's sort of, to me, it seems sort of surprising that after all these years, we still don't have to make that determination. Because I would argue a lot of cash-intensive businesses 
There probably some of them aren't reporting their taxes. Right. But then maybe the banks, that shouldn't be their job. I don't know. Right. No, it's it's a very difficult area. In a, uh, uh, when I was uh, the chief of CID, I, I had a, a, a modestly long-running uh, battle with uh, one of my very close friends, Rick Small, uh, uh, who had, a, I forgot, one of the private sector leading roles at the time. And, I, you know, I was, my job was only tax. And I was like, Rick, why don't we, you know, add this? I have to admit, he had some pretty good points, which was, it's it's the mind reading thing, and the other thing is, how does the bank know right. whatever is going on that the tax return isn't accurate? I mean, for all they know, somebody could be engaging in reasonably you know suspicious activity at one level or another. But for all they know, by the time it came around to April fifteenth, the next year, you know, the tax return that was actually filed picked right. up the activity in the way we want. So I I have some sympathy with the problem out there. I do think that um, a lot of this though does get covered because some of the activities and the behaviors that sort of are classic money laundering look like tax evasion. I'm sus- I suspect mm-hmm. that some banks are report they might sure. in the back of their mind wonder if it's ta- you know what the motive is, right. tax or illegal. But so I, I figure a lot of activity winds up getting reported anyway. And then, and the in the yeah. offshore area would be the classic area. I used to be at uh, Deutsche Bank, the global uh, co-head of anti-money laundering there. So I know a little bit about how like the international finance censors structure their surveillance mm-hmm. program. So I would be very surprised if all the big global wire rooms are don't have algorithms that are looking for new or, or, original periodic, you know, wire transfers in and out of, uh, you can call them a tax haven, you can call them an offshore financial center, whatever. I'm, I would be very surprised if a lot of that activity is now not being looked into and probably filing conservative SARS to cover the bank for that. So I'm, I'm betting a lot of it gets picked up. Yeah, I think that's right, especially because a lot of the red flag indicators are uh, transactional, right? So it could be anything. It could be done for terrorism, it could be done for elder abuse, could be done for human trafficking, whatever, but it would be the same sort of activity the tax evasion would be. So you, I, I think you're, you're yeah, 100% and it's, right. And for instance, yeah. I mean, um, again, in the international space, I think it's the, probably the best example because you could be Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. Yeah. It's all the same thing. It's all about you know the, the beneficial owner looking at that and the transactional activity. One of the things that worries me as I step back and look at the forest for the trees um, this international thing, while fun and great for the agents and is a great story for the American tax public who want to know that the cheaters are being... Right. I mean, the truth is the average American has a very strong economic interest in there being a fairly aggressive and funded IRS because they're not cheating and the other people right. are getting away with So while it does a great job of the international, it's it still... They only got $11 billion out of the offshore. Now, $11 billion in, 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 even in Washington is not that much money, right, right, <laughs> you know. Right. And when you look at the small business tax gap, the portion of what's called the tax gap, that's what doesn't come in that should come in, it's $200 billion. Mm. So what, what I do think we're missing is sort of the biggest hole in the dike of compliance is the small business. I mean, it's just a gusher over there, and yet we're focused on important don't get me wrong sure. important but some holes over here which are much more modest i don't think the banking this is where i don't think the banking community and i'm not blaming i'm just saying i think it's very very hard for them to pick up that but that's where in terms of harm to treasury that's where the action is so i want to go back a little bit to your couple of years in the in the bank and i know it's a bit ago yeah. and um from only from this perspective so after being 
in law enforcement, being in policy positions, you you come to a financial institution um, after 9-11. So antennas are up, obviously. Right. They're bringing in people like you, right, uh, right and left, because they want to make sure they have the right people in these positions. What did you learn, not so much about the bank specifically, but just in general about the industry then, which has changed probably since then, I'm sure, good or bad. I mean, I think things evolve constantly in in the uh, in the AML space in the financial sector, and now we have, you know, fintech and other right. non banks that are being looked at by FinCEN are bringing in AML people. But in that period of time that you were there after 9/11 for those couple of years, what surprised you, and what did you glean about the entire community at the time? Right. Um, um. The, my snapshot may be perverted or warped a little bit because it was all about getting the Patriot Act right. implemented. And when you were at a bank uh, like Deutsche Bank that had grown by more by acquisition than organically, you're, the IT systems you're trying to get to sort of talk to each other and communicate with each other. It was just it was so my time there was surprising to me of how much I essentially was doing IT work and trying wow. you know and it, and it's the trader would call. You know, from Singapore, or the, and, and you're trying to look. Wait a second, that trade, even though the client is in London, and it goes for a nanosecond through a New York server. Do we have an OFAC scrub, right? And and I saw a lot of people working very hard to make sure that all of that worked. Um, I was also allowed to, you know, there were times when people would say, "Look at this client, look at." And and the nice thing about being in a bank like they dedicated the resources, so I could hire one of the big global investigative firms and go in and take a look at that. What I think it struck me, and again, it may have been because of the time, it was the trade-off between what I thought was the better work, it's some more targeted on real issues versus least common denominator regulator. And I'm, I'm not really trying to blame the regulators. They have to deal with both the most sophisticated banks in the world and the mom right. and pops. Right. But I felt like when I came out of it, and again, maybe because of my time, I felt like there was this focus again, sort of on the, some of the trees on the on the on the uh, least common, what I call least common denominator approach to everything, and you didn't give people and institutions their head to try to do the right thing. I remember we we kept being pressed by the regulators to file more SARS. I used to joke at the SAR wars, I called them, you know. And, you know, uh, again, a place like um, uh, Deutsche Bank doesn't have the teller. You know, they don't have, right. dollar for dollar, you don't expect as many, you know. But I felt, you know, at times like we were being pushed to file more. And I had been enough in law enforcement, I knew that right. that's junk. You're just creating junk mm-hmm. for the system. And that was another mismatch, sort of, I thought, where one arm of the government was sort of in a weird way acting inconsistent with the with the with the other one. But again, this was in right in the wake of 9/11. Sure. Everybody was going, you know, appropriately sort of nuts, so maybe that's balanced out a little bit since Well, since it probably my time. I don't know if it's balanced as much as, you know, there's been uh, actually some traction in Congress surprisingly on some AML reform, which is shocking. It's good in a way because it's been as we know 30 plus years since the Money Loan Control Act, but um, I've seen proposals to Jump up CTRs to thirty thousand. Jump up SARS, which makes no sense to me. The CTR one, admittedly, I was in favor of fifteen, twenty years ago, but not anymore. I think the the process is such that the systems, you're not going to save all that much if you jump the thresholds. Whereas right. I thought before, and I actually think today the issue is more um, exemptions and how the regulators uh, handle exemption oversight than it is the CTRs per se. But so there's reform being discussed today, which leads me to think a couple things. One is there's less of a focus 
within the government, not in law enforcement, but within the other parts of the government on the Bank Secrecy Act, as opposed to there should be a focus on improving the act. They say that's what they want to do. I'm sort of surprised. I'm not asking you to weigh in one way or the other, although I'm happy to hear your point of view, but the OCC, the new comptroller, he came out in favor of jumping the thresholds, which I've never heard any bank agency person say before. I thought that was particularly unusual. And your former colleagues in law enforcement that don't necessarily agree, they're not saying much. I mean, right. It's a really strange time we're in. Right. Well, it's, I, 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 had a one, I was a, a historical footnote in one of these, and I, you may have been uh, a part of this. It was in, when Lloyd Benson mm-hmm. was Secretary of the Treasury. The Democrats had come in. I was a Schedule C political appointee in the administration and Treasury, and the word came out, we're going to be business savvy. And so one of the things we looked at the ten, the, the, the CTRs had passed yep. I think 15 million that year or some the right of right of, but we had 15 right. million CTRs, and so we were going to and I think I think the American Bankers Association we or somebody yeah. Yeah. they wrote a really clever letter which said essentially we've spent whatever the number was 400 million dollars creating your, how many cases right. did you make and I remember I I was the one who had the pleasure of taking to the Assistant Secretary the word that there were three <laughs> cases that we had found right. and that was not a very happy answer. Right. <laughs> at the time. Um, but it was interesting, you know, because we looked right then, let's get the threshold up. But the answer came back, you know, and, and you, don't, you would hear this, no, it's the threshold itself sets its own deterrence value, makes smurfing harder. You know, it's right. not exactly how many you catch, right? It's no, this message you sent yeah. out there. So, so we came up with the exemptions, which had its own issues. Which we thought, by the way, we supported wholeheartedly the exemption process. We thought that was going to be it was a two-tier process from what I remember. We sent press releases out on this and worked with you guys. The problem was not the IRS. The problem was how the regulators right. oversaw the well, exemption. That, and, and it was sort of the same the yeah. same thing. And what's, what's interesting, I mean, let me give you another example. FBARs, mm-hmm. which have been near and dear to my life now for many years. Um, I am virtually certain, and I have never been... Uh, uh, confronted with evidence to the contrary that there has never been in the history of the world a criminal case that was initiated from the filing of an FBAR. And everybody kind of go, wait a second, Swiss. No, that's not filing right. FBARs. It's not, it's not that somebody filed one, it led to an investigation, it went off. They are used, and it's a wonderful little Good tool term. for a prosecutor right. to have a, a count, particularly like in a tax area, something if you can't prove the tax or if money laundering, you can't prove the SUA. Beautiful. Here's this little thing here. Oh, the, the Manafort case. You get perfect. 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 You get. You get. You get that. But at some level, do you not step back? I mean, my life has been the tearful secretary to the 501c3 whose signature was on the blocker account, and 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 she thinks she's going to go to prison. Right. And the wear and tear, and the diligence, and the focus on a form like, and you know, and you know, as I, I always tell people, you you. you just look back analytically at the form. Who, if they were using a foreign bank account to commit tax evasion or money laundering, would ever file right. that form? The only reason you'd do it would be to bolster your insanity defense, right, at trial. So, so deal with that. And I must admit, that thought did not occur to me when I was at the IRS. Right. You know, but so, but so, deal with that. Get beneath those levers and look layers and look at that. So I would argue, and I was a strong opponent of FATCA. I think we overdid it in FATCA and too broad, too fast, too. But in theory, FATCA should wipe out the need for F bars. So let's let's try to be more savvy. I mean, right now you report, you get a report on a account from FATCA. You get out a re- report on account from an F bar from the owner, the signatory, and the like. The taxpayer has to file it on Schedule B, an F bar, an 8938 form. 
is that redundancy mm-hmm. really making any sense at this point? And, and part of the problem is law enforcement and the regulators don't understand the cost to the system to that. And Because if you're here at FinCEN and somebody says eliminate the FIN, why? Right. It's free data. It goes into the big black box. It's there to be pinged. And what they don't really focus on is the wear and tear right. on, on people to, 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 to produce that data, the 99% of which is doing nothing for law enforcement. The last issue I want to talk to you about is in today's uh, AML world, uh, the bankers are grappling with the CDD rule, the new beneficial ownership identification, uh, but not verification. So uh, obviously you know much much better than I know what caused this. It was in part because of the fad of mutual valuation from years ago. So there were gaps in the U.S. laws regarding this. Give us, um, and, and obviously the, the rule was implemented in May, the regulators are starting to look at banks to see it's now considered the fifth pillar of AML, so a violation is pretty serious. I have moderated a lot of regulator panels since May, and they've all said, we're working with the banks, we're going to evolve this, we're not going to hammer them early on, that sort of thing. And I take their word for it for the most part. I think that's fair. Uh, what are your clients, uh, if any, or any companies that you're dealing with, people because now we have to identify and list beneficial ownership, which we didn't have to do before. Right. Give us some both some practical things that are maybe people aren't considering, and, and what do you what do you take in from all this? Right. It's been and this to me is where these worlds of tax evasion and money laundering, Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, they're all sort of merging into you know one big uh, sort of uh, enterprise. Uh, and effort. And to me, at every level, it comes down to beneficial ownership. And it's just, it's a real struggle. Uh, uh, I've, I've seen it on both sides. When you're on the government side, it's, it, it, it sounds pretty, well, just please put on the sheet of paper who owns the money, right? It's, right. it's It sounds right. relatively straightforward and you push on that. But in my world, even, you know, you sit there and say, okay, the Liechtenstein Trust with the Swiss bank account, suspicious, something like that. Well, no, a lot of those are absolutely totally legitimate and come from net family history and the like. And and the relationship, and this is where the, the complexity of the tax code is no friend of this entire enterprise at all because what, if anything, may be taxable out of that a trust and the rules about beneficial, indirect, contingent, beneficial ownership, it is a real trick for, and, and by the way, we're depending on foreign financial institutions to do this? I mean, that was one of my sort of objections to fact, because who, who are we to impose that on the world and that level of minutia and detail in our code trying to trying to figure that out? So I must say, I've seen, I spent a lot of time, now we represent Swiss banks who have been caught up in all this stuff. And again, there look, there were mistakes there, there were people who knew they were doing wrong, but by and large, at the institutional level overall, they've been trying to do a good job on this, and it's a real... It's really difficult for them, and, and 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 so I do not have the solution for things like trust LLCs, nested ownership. That it it I think it's going to remain a struggle for a while. It's going to be I think what's going to be interesting here is going to be the degree to which the common reporting standard, which of course the United States is not having imposed FATCA, we didn't join the common reporting standard. My sense is the real action is going to be in Europe. 
that they actually are going to benefit more from this than the United States mm-hmm. ever did. I think ours is much more limited. So I think the place to me that I'm going to be watching is what to the degree is, it comes out of like the common re- reporting standard or things like that where people who really will see benefits to this, the enforcements and the regulators, how are they going to um, solve this? Note? I'd like to say I have the answer, but I, it's something we still struggle with you know, on, on virtually a daily basis. We take a quick break. I'll be right back. We hope you're enjoying this edition of AML Conversations. This podcast and many other anti-money laundering and Bank Secrecy Act related posts, podcasts, and case studies can be found on our new website at amlrightsource.com. Our team of AML BSA professionals regularly produces informative content that we hope you find resourceful. Check the AML Rightsource website or follow us on LinkedIn for updates. So, Mark, today um, you're going to the um, swearing in the new IRS commissioner. Before I ask you to comment on uh, his background and, and um, what we can expect, one of the things that, as somebody in the community of AML, and which includes our law enforcement partners, it was really disturbing to, to see the attacks uh, on IRS and the lack of funding, frankly, for a number of agents. I remember... We hear it from the current uh, IRS CI director, Don, Don Ford has mentioned this, the previous uh, director, um, Rich Weber, would sort of commonly talk about this. Um, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but there's certainly been a reduction. And is that impactful? It seems it would obviously be impactful, That number one. And then number two, tell us about the new commissioner. Sure. I think it is impactful. When I was the CID chief, we had... 3,000 special agents, and we were putting through as many as 12 classes a year. I think each class had 24 agents at at FLETC, the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center. A healthy organization has to do that, has to keep the training up. I mean, there's a flow to the government, especially in an area like the 1811 community when they they can retire earlier. The generational, you've got to keep the sort of the the treadmill uh, moving there. Now they're at risk of going below 2,000 special agents, and that understates the impact because organizations, like being what they are, tend to keep the overhead when the you know, when the, when the agent. For, so you'll you you rare it's you don't get rid of your group managers and your ASACs and that kind of thing. You tend to just take it you know with the street guys right. who are, and that's I'm not, I'm not blaming the IRS. Any organization act like that. So the real impact on what it means to cases is actually understated by that drop. The high level high water mark was 3,300. We're now down to I think below 2,000, and that understates uh, the impact on the civil side. The exam side, they're down I think over 20, maybe close to 25,000 agents now and they're struggling to answer the phones and the whole side of the uh, which is an important part of it the taxpayer services uh, uh, side of that I, I think I think it has a, a, a real um, impact out there our country right now is one of the luckiest in in the world in the sense that we have probably the most complex tax code in the world but we have one of the highest compliance rates, and the, which is actually a real trick, and it comes from 200 years of democracy and a lot of work. Um, you know, the compliance rate floats between 83 and 85 percent. We are the envy of the world to some degree in that. We have a, we have a $500 billion tax gap, but when you compare it to the overall net revenue, we're actually doing pretty good. 
But I've been into places like Eastern Europe uh, after uh, the wall fell, trying to help them get their tax system up and running. And when you see, that's when you really see how critical a functioning tax system is to a workable democracy. Now, I'm not trying to shout too much an alarm here, but you worry if this slide were to continue, do we get to a point where that person who's sitting at the kitchen table writing that hard check on April 15th is thinking, again, am I a chump? Are the, is there resources out there to get the other uh, people out um, out there? And you know that's one of the things we were dealing with um, after the Roth hearings, when you know the, when the agents' heads get down and nobody wants to be aggressive, it eventually has an Im- impact out there. So I am I am very concerned about the resources there. Look, there's the only, and I say this as a as a Democrat, but I'm saying I'm beating, I'm complaining to both parties. The only bipartisan sport left in this town is kicking the IRS. I mean, that, that right. it, it is no, you're, no one's going to stand back from that. If you right. find the thing, they're going to go and and, um, and do that. It's where we really depend on adult supervision and adults and the Ways and Means Committee and Finance Committee to stand up and say no. Most Americans, the vast, actually have an interest in some enforcement sure. here. So that it is the it is the only profit center in the United States government. And given these other problems we have, we need to do that. And that sort of brings me to Chuck. I mean, and tell us who it is. Yeah, Chuck Reddick, uh, Charles Reddick. He's from he's a, a lifetime um, lawyer out in uh, in California at the Hockman Salkin Reddick firm. Uh, probably missed somebody's name on that, so my apologies. <laughs> um, but he has been a lifelong in the tax community. He's he's been on every panel board you've ever can imagine. He's all, particularly all over California. But he was the head of the IRS advisory committee, so he knows the IRS very well. He knows the agents. He knows the community very well. He is, in fact, for your listeners, he's been working over the last ten years very much in the same space we've been talking about: the offshore world, the criminal world. That, that's sort of one of his strong suits. So. Um, uh, he, it's going to be good to have somebody there. There's been for the last three or four commissioners. There's been this get it away from a tax lawyer, get a manager type, of, and then Chuck's got the management chops for this job. Don't get me wrong, but he, unlike the last three or four, is really a guy who's lived his entire career in the tax world. And I think it's going to be a little bit refreshing to see someone like him come in. He is a gregarious, affable sort of bear of a guy. Um, People are going to love him. Uh, the uh, the employees are going to love him. He uh, the, the the senior people in that organization are going to are going to love him. He is going to be able to let more than I would if I went back. I always got my dander up at all the you know the press every day is just a group of beatings and the congressional letters are nasty all day long. You know. He is of a personality type that's going to let that roll off his back a little bit more than some of us would, and he's going to walk right back up there to the congressman, talk to them, try to meet him. So I am cautiously optimistic if there is a guy who can turn around a little bit the image, particularly with the people who count, which is like up on the hill. And and, and I don't mean that the others don't get, but from a budgeting and finance point of view, you've got to get them to stand up for you and ultimately vote for more money for you. And so I am, a lot of us are really looking forward to uh, seeing what Chuck can do. He's only one guy. You've got that one right. political appointment. It's hard to turn that big a ship, but uh, this is, I think this is the best guy for it. Mark, um, you've been very gracious and generous with your time today. We've covered a lot of areas. Just as a, a get you out on, out on this last question, and that is AML professionals who do care about this space, we've already talked about, they right. are probably reporting a lot of possible tax evasion on SARS. Anything, your crystal ball next year, year and a half, in terms of focus, obviously with with the Panama Papers and the Paradise Papers, 
a sort of a renewed focus on uh, offshore activity, and certainly that's a pretty sexy topic, so people right. can focus on it. What are you seeing based both on your clients and also just your work with policy? Yeah, you, what, what you worry about is, and again, it comes with this period of time we're in where you know, people who should know better, and I'm, I'm not, again, I'm not trying to make up, because it's come from both sides, but are, are saying things about law enforcement, the FBI, um, the IRS in places. What I really think they actually know better. And, uh, but you worry about the messaging out there. Um, it takes me back to the Roth hearings, where uh, particularly an institution like the IRS is sort of can't fight back. There were claims about things that went on, for instance, in a search or something like that, that we knew in the room were not true. But because of 6103, the taxes, we couldn't even defend ourselves, right? So you worry about an environment like that, that it does two things, that the funding will continue to drop and that it also sends a message to the professionals, keep your head down. I mean, the, the worry at times, sort of at the IRS, the, the phrase was, the only way you get in trouble is do anything, right? If that gets out, right, that's a, that's a disaster. And what I guess I'd say to your professionals, reduce, uh, try to avoid the temptation to think, okay, their heads are going to be down here for a while because the clients will start to get more aggressive. And that's what happened after the Roth hearings. We, and, and we saw the, even some of the blue-chip accounting firms sort of bought into that and started marketing themselves in areas not just were just service, you know, with some aggressiveness, right? right on the, and I guess I'd say to your professor, keep, keep an eye out because I am hopeful that with people like Chuck and where he is and others that we're going to see this... I mean, the pendulum always swings in right. this country. It never goes one side to. So don't relax your guard now. That pendulum is going to come back. And you don't want to be the guy or the compliance officer who three years from now looks back when the pendulum is back and you start looking at some things, decisions you're making now and go, gee, I should have gone a, a step further back then because, you know, statute of limitations right. is out there for a reason. So don't get overconfident and, and stick with the cause. Great. Mark, thanks so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. No, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, as you can tell, I could have gone a lot longer with Mark. Um, tremendously interesting person. You know, basically, because of his, his broad range of experience in the private and the public sector, and the importance of understanding that people need to have a better appreciation of what, frankly, the IRS does, and how important it is to societal goals. I thought it was particularly interesting um, given his distinction between what's tax evasion, tax avoidance, the question about willfulness, um, understanding that in some cases offshore banking can be legitimate, but you have to ask a number of questions, and I think that's pretty important. So uh, I was really pleased with uh, the time he gave us. If you're more interested in uh, working with Mark's firm, it's Kaplan and Drysdale. And they can be found, of course, at KaplanDrysdale.com here in Washington, D.C., and they also have an office in New York. Also, would mention uh, that this was recorded the same day that uh, Charles or Chuck Redding was put in as the IRS commissioner. So take a look online and uh, get more information about Mr. Redding. As uh, Mark mentioned, he thinks uh, Redding's background is going to be so critical to the mission of the Internal Revenue Service. And, you know, especially when we hear some candidates talking about abolishing the IRS and, and other foolish uh, notions, I think it's really important that we as AML professionals stand up for law enforcement and let people know the importance of the Internal Revenue Service, 
with the FBI and with Homeland Security and all the work they do in anti-money laundering and uh, dealing with tax evasion. Thanks for listening. Uh, This is John Byrne for AML Conversations, and we will talk to you next time.